0: welcome to the robert lewis sermons podcast a collection of sermons from dr lewis during his time as teaching pastor at fellowship bible church in little rock arkansas we desire to see all who are Christ's followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast here's this week's message let me ask you to take your bibles now we're going to look if you're just joining with us this sunday i want you to know that our subject is carving out a godly culture And we've been addressing that for a number of months now. And at the beginning point of what we mean by carving out a godly culture is to first lay a godly foundation. And that godly foundation involves what we have been addressing as moral absolutes. And those moral absolutes is found in the Ten Commandments. What I'd like to do this morning to set up the Sixth Commandment is have you turn to the prophet Hosea. That's towards the end of your Old Testament. But I'd like you to all turn there with me Uh, One of the things that I think is very important that uh, we find these Scriptures together and read them together, it's more important that you see them on the written page since God took the time to protect His written Word that you read it with me. But I want to start this morning on the Sixth Commandment looking at Hosea chapter 4 and reading the first three verses. Hosea writes to the nation of Israel Words that were, of course, contemporary to his time, but certainly fit our time as well. He says this, Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land, because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing and deception and murder and stealing and adultery, And they employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes. Do you feel some of that oppressive spirit in our own day? That our own country, in a sense, is in a state of mourning, though no one is actually going down the streets of Little Rock publicly crying, but in many ways all across our land and our cities and our towns and our neighborhoods, there is a sense of mourning and our land is languishing. I want, to, to, I want you to travel now 2,700 years forward to the future, to our day now from Hosea's day and listen to the words of Andrew Peyton Thomas from his book Crime and the Sacking of America. He writes, so this is how it all ends. As the 20th century sears its final momentous years of the tablets of recorded human existence, Americans should, by the most superficial measures, be jubilant. Our republic is capping off what arguably qualifies as the most remarkable century of national ascent in history. Having entered the 1900s, an immature, cloistered society more concerned with subduing Indians than policing the globe, our nation has grown up fast and impressively. The United States began this century a hundred years ago, an undeveloped nation struggling to find its competitive niche in the international economy still dominated by the old world. And yet now it ends up with unprecedented economic supremacy in a truly global market. America alone among nations reaped huge profits from the two world wars, profits that her victories allowed her to keep. America's culture soon captivated the post-war world. America's principal external foe during this century was also disposed of in due course. When threatened by her most potent foreign adversary to date, a nuclear-armed Marxism hatched from the writings of an ungrateful ward of capitalistic England, America managed to wind up even this titanic struggle in the relatively short span of 50 years. Her Soviet adversary crumbling into quarreling new nation-states And even after expending trillions of dollars in support of this enterprise, America finds herself at the end of the Cold War flush with one-fourth of the world's gross domestic product. The democratic ideas once under siege now seem so irrepressible that some scholars barring from the same philosophical heritage that spawned the previously mighty enemy Marxism talk now of the end of history. America, it seems, can now simply give a contented sigh and relax, basking in her glory as world savior and reaping handsomely and handsomely a profit to boot. But then he says, history is not finished yet. Something in the triumphant nation is amiss. It is evident in the public opinion surveys that show that 70% of Americans believe the nation is off track. 66% of us think the nation is in moral and spiritual decline. We sense that our nation is slowly being torn apart. Unlike the official abrupt dissolution of the Soviet Union and Warsaw Pact, America's domestic implosion does not reveal itself in a single instance or act. Mostly we must listen for the indicative groans of decay around us. But then there are those especially abominable acts of violence that drive home the full dimensions of the crisis that we are now in. We feel that crisis. We feel it when we see some of those abominable acts that erupt periodically to remind us of the social and spiritual decay around us. We watch it on our TV screen as we see a building blown up in Oklahoma City. We watch it and we feel it when we watch the LA riots. We sense it when we see the World Trade Center blown apart from its foundation. And then we feel it in those little stories found everywhere in America's newspaper like that of Marcus Bogan. Do you remember Marcus this week? I met Marcus this week in the newspaper, our newspaper, and I'm not really sure what grabbed my attention about this little boy, except maybe it was because I have a son his age who plays sports like he did. And rather than just numb out to another social tragedy and move on to the sports page, I focused on him for a moment and began to think about him. Marcus was 14 years old. He was the quarterback for the Barton High School junior high team. He was a three-point student in school, well-liked, and he made me stop and think about him. And when I did, I could feel this tremendous emotional energy surge up in my spirit. So much so that this uh, last Wednesday, I felt moved to write an essay to Marcus. And here's what it said. To Marcus Bogan, what was it that I did wrong today? Was it waking up to go to church? Was it saying, yes, ma'am, when mama said, why don't you go wash the car before church, Marcus? Was it in being obedient? Was it choosing the car wash near the Y Camp truck stop? Was it the song I was singing on the way? Was it the time of day I chose? What was it that I did wrong today? It's hard to answer that question when you're afraid, really afraid, terrified, When you're in the back seat of mama's car with a gun to your head. When they pull the car over and they tell you to run. And the first shotgun blast hits you in the arm. What was it that I did wrong today? I want to know, but the pain in my arm makes no sense. Something tells me that there is no time to answer that question. Something tells me to cry, God, God as I run into that bean field outside Helena. Something says, remember quickly your mama's warm embrace, the winning touchdown you made for Barton Junior High team. Remember your friends and holidays and all the fun times and grandpa rubbing your head and saying, you're going to be a fine young man someday, Marcus. Drink it all in, that desperate voice says to me for the one moment that you now have left. What was it that I did wrong today? Was it in leaving home to wash the car before church? The second bullet that explodes my head says it all. You see, the Scripture says, bloodshed follows bloodshed. And the land mourns, and everyone in it languishes. You know, it's both sad and terrifying to me that I can walk the back street and alleyways of Beijing, China without fear. I've done that. It's amazing to me that I can allow my children to go anywhere in the country of Poland, down into the city center at 12 o'clock midnight in Wrocław, Poland, without fear. And I've done that. And yet, I can't drive across my own city without a sense of fear, or drive up to the ATM machine without fear, or worry about my children who go out at night without fear in my own neighborhood. I can identify with the prophet Isaiah in his opening chapter to the people of their day when he said, How the faithful city has become a harlot, she who was full of justice, where righteousness once lodged in her... But now, murderers. Murderers. America the beautiful has become slowly, sometimes imperceptibly, America the violent. Did you know that violent crime has risen an astounding 560% since the year 1960? 560%. 83% of the children who were born in the year 1975, statistics tell us, will be a victim or an intended victim of violent crime. A citizen in car-crazy Los Angeles, okay, is more likely to be killed by a bullet than by a car wreck. That's how violent it's become. A resident of an American city is more likely to be murdered than the average American soldier in World War II. Drug czar and former Secretary of Education Bill Bennett in his leading cultural indicators makes a startling announcement to us. Since 1990, not not 70 or 60 or 50, since 1990, 90,000 Americans have been murdered, twice the number of the Vietnam War. Every night, you turn on your local news, and like I did as a college student in the 60s, I listen for the body count of my city, who's been killed, What kid's been murdered? What parent or unsuspecting, just simply victim has been executed? How does a city, how does a community, how does a country stay healthy rather than become the harlot of injustice and murder? The answer begins with values. Values, a moral constitution. And God has given us that moral constitution in the Ten Commandments. This morning, we're going to look at the second half of the Ten Commandments, so the start of the second half, number six. Remember the, the commandment that introduced the first half was that there are no other gods besides me. And in that first commandment, God says the beginning point of true spirituality begins with an understanding that there is only one true God. And unless you embrace Him, trouble is ahead. When we begin this second Half and the, the one at the beginning of that heads this second half, the sixth commandment, speaks to the sacredness of human life. That does it from the negative. It says, Thou shalt not kill. But in that, it declares that the respect for and the protection of human life, of all kinds of human life, at all levels of human existence, is the beginning point of true community between people. True spirituality starts with the first. True community starts with the sixth commandment. The more life is respected and honored, listen, the more freedom that we have with one another to engage one another, to talk with one another, to commune with one another. But when life is disregarded, when life is cheapened, whether it be from an overemphasis of personal rights whether it be this new secularized mechanical view of man that our country has embraced in the last 25 years, whether it be freedom in place of responsibility at every turn, the human community in that environment breaks down. We're not sure what the other person thinks about us or how they value us, and so we draw back rather than engage. And in that vacuum, murder, fills the void. Exodus twenty thirteen declares simply, thou shalt not kill. In Hebrew, it's just two words. No killing! None! It doesn't try to qualify it. It just says, no killing! Now what does this commandment prohibit? Because some would argue for an unlimited application. I mean, there are the peace activists who quote it. There are the capital punishment opponents and the pro-lifers who put it on placards, the proponents of gun control, everybody, you can see them holding up the sign, Thou shalt not kill. What does it mean? I want to share, first of all, five things it doesn't mean, real quickly. Five things it doesn't mean. First of all, this commandment does not forbid the killing of animals. Just four chapters back, by the way, as the children of Israel stumble along in this pilgrimage God provides for them quail to eat as much as they want. Look at our chapter, chapter 20. You might look at verse 24. I mean, it comes right after this statement, thou shalt not kill. And yet in the few verses that follow, it says in verse 24, you shall make an altar of earth for me and you shall sacrifice on it burnt offerings and your peace offerings. And here's what they sacrifice on it. Your sheep, your oxen, In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, and I will come to you and bless you. Killing of animals. We know that Jesus ate animals. He ate fish. He taught His disciples where to catch fish and to eat them. Paul gave instructions in the book of Romans on what kind of meat to eat. So it doesn't forbid the killing of animals. I mean, the vegetarian and the animal rights activists may have difficulty with that. Certainly we're not... Uh, condoning the torture, the excruciating torture of animals, but the killing of animals is not under the ban of Exodus 20, verse 13. Secondly, this commandment does not forbid killing someone in order to protect yourself. Since we're in Exodus 20, you might look over in Exodus 22, verse 2. It says, If the thief is caught while breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there will be no blood guiltiness on his account. But if the sun has risen on this thief, there will be blood guiltiness on his account. He shall surely make restitution if he owes nothing, then shall he be sold for his theft. Now what that's saying, that's a little hard, especially the third verse, but it's saying if a thief breaks in at night and you don't know why he's breaking in or why he's entering your home, what he's trying to accomplish, and you, in a sense of self-protection, kill that thief, no charge. That's what it's saying. On the other hand, if a thief was breaking in in the daytime and it was real clear that his objective was just to steal something, then you don't have the right to kill him. Now we have laws like that on our books that make that distinction between self-protection and just simply wanton murder of somebody when you know they weren't there to kill you. We have those same things. But all through the Old Testament legislation, protecting yourself is not under the ban of Exodus 20 verse 13. Thirdly, this commandment does not apply to accidental killings. Now keep your place in Exodus 20 and turn forward to Numbers. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. And turn to Numbers chapter 35. Numbers 35, look at verse 9. Now remember, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are all legal literature. It's prescribing legislation for a people to order themselves and to organize themselves and to live well together. And here in Numbers 35, look at verse 9. The Lord is speaking to Moses and He says, verse 10, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select for yourselves cities to be your cities of refuge, that the manslayer who has killed any person unintentionally may flee there. And the cities shall be to you as a refuge from the avenger so that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for trial. In other words, to be sure that it was accidental. And the cities which you are to give shall be your six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities across the Jordan and three cities in the land of Canaan They are to be your cities of refuge. These six cities shall be refuge for the sons of Israel and for the alien and for the sojourner among them that anyone who kills a person unintentionally may flee there. Now there was a price to an unintentional manslaughter and that is that you had to go to one of these cities and stay there according to the legislation until the high priest died and then you were free to leave. So there was was penalty for that kind of accidental death but it was a refuge for you so that someone in the passion of the moment couldn't take your life for something that was done unintentionally. A fourth statement that is not to be included with Exodus 20:13 is this, it doesn't forbid killing that takes place in what historians and theologians have wrestled with and simply called the just war. The just war. The just war is defined historically, and it's been a debate historically, as that which is for a righteous cause. And there are a number of wars where you wonder how righteous they really were. You wrestle with that, and I'm not trying to get us off the hook here today to say every war America has fought is a righteous war. But I think we could look and recognize in World War I and II when we were the defender nation rather than the aggressor nation, and what would have occurred had that defense not been put forward, that we begin to get at some of what this just war is all about, and what might have been if we hadn't have fought it. Also let me remind you that the very people that God is speaking to here in Exodus 20 are the people who in just a few months will go to war at God's command against the Hittites and the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the Hivites and all those others. And His command to them will be to go into that land, even with Exodus 20, 13 in hand, and to drive those people out and to make war, and yes, to kill them. And they will. But there is in this understanding, we must wrestle with this issue of the just war. Then finally, this commandment does not forbid capital punishment. I want you to turn back to Numbers 35 for a moment, and I want you to see what it says. There's a very important statement here that we need to reckon with. I was telling Dan about this before the service. But in Numbers 35, verse 29, Moses says this. He says, And these things shall be for a statutory ordinance to you throughout your generations in all your dwellings. I want you to listen to this. He says... Numbers 35, 30. If anyone kills a person... Now, we're, we just talked about unintentional, so by the time you get here, he's talking about intentional. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. He's saying there's got to be witnesses, but if this was an intentional murder, then the murderer is to be put to death. Now, why? Look at verse... 33, this is the the deeper verse, the one that's worth pondering. So you shall not pollute the land in which you are for, excuse me, so you shall not pollute the land in which you are, for blood pollutes the land and no expiation or atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it, except, see this, listen, except by the blood of Him who shed it. Remember the prophet Hosea saying the land mourns and languishes? There's something about a culture where when murder occurs and it's obvious that the person intentionally planned to kill that person and then is caught and there are witnesses and yet his life is not exchanged for the life that he shed that somehow that, if I can use the phrase, dumb downs the culture. It, it pollutes the land with injustice rather than justice. And it makes the land less than it should be. And it causes the people to become less than God intended them to be. The land is polluted when there is no real justice according to the Word of God. Now, I think that's important. I mean, even in Genesis 9:6, 6 even before Moses, way before Moses, after Cain killed Abel, God said, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Life for life. Now that sounds hard today in a, quote, modern culture. But I see capital uh, crimes opponents with their placards, Thou shalt not kill, standing there as if they are giving what the Bible says when you can turn to Exodus 20 and even come to the very next chapter, Exodus 21 verse 12, and it says, He who strikes a man that so that he dies, he shall surely be put to death. Those chapters are right next to one another. And obviously they didn't feel like that was a contradiction of any kind. Exodus 20 verse 13 has nothing to do, I believe, with capital punishment. In fact... Exodus 20, verse 13, lays the line for justice in the land. Now, I know that many today say that capital punishment does not deter crime. The the, the argument that I hear constantly on the TV is that when you have capital punishment, that, that the statistics prove that it has nothing to do with solving our crime problem. I don't know if that's true or not true. People use statistics that are dizzying today. But let's just say it's not true. Let's say it does not deter crime. I'm still for capital punishment. And let me tell you why I'm for it, because I think it's very important here. It is, capital punishment is a value statement about the value of the life taken. If today my son goes out like Marcus, and he's snatched away by somebody who intentionally plans to kill him and he's brutally murdered, Then I as a father, as I stand in that courtroom and hear the verdict, 15 years, 10 with good behavior, my son is worth more than 10 years. My son is worth more than 20 years. The value of my son, I only get close to when it comes life, for life. It's a value statement of the importance of his life, and it's not there for sale. It's not there to be diminished, depreciated, minimized. If I want to grant mercy, give me the dad the privilege of granting mercy. But if I want justice and I want valued justice, then let me have it. Life for life. Anything less pollutes the meaning of the value of life, I believe. The sixth commandment does not apply to these five things. So what does it apply to? Well, let me talk to that for a moment. If you'll notice, and you probably already have, and you looked at Exodus 20, because a lot of the Bibles now have kind of corrected what I think is an error in translation or or confusion in translation when they say, thou shalt not kill. Like if you've got a New American Standard, it doesn't say that anymore. It says, you shall not murder. There's a lot of different words for kill and murder. Moses chooses one that specifically addresses the intentional malicious act of murder in which one puts someone undeserving of death to death. That's what Exodus 20, 13 addresses. And this morning, as we address what is really a difficult subject, I want you to see three very specific applications for the Sixth Commandment. The first concerning murder that's called homicide, just simply homicide. I don't know if you remember this, but I remember the very powerful pictorial bar graph in Time Magazine as it unfolded on two pages. And on those two pages listed on the left-hand side were all the great Western and uh, Asian democracies of the world. And what the bar graph was there to do across these two pages was show the, the numbers of murder per capita in each of the countries. Maybe you remember that. And I don't need to give the statistics, the picture told it all. At the top were you know England and Spain and Greece and France and those countries. And as they stood there along this line, the little bar graph went maybe an inch or a half inch of murders per capita. As you move down towards the bottom, you came to places like South Korea and Japan. They had virtually no black bar graph at all. Nothing. And then you came to the United States at the bottom. And that black bar graph went across one page and across the other page to the very end. And at the bottom of the page was the question, what is wrong with American society? It's a great question to be the supreme leader of the world and be the most violent country on earth that calls itself civilized. You know, the kind of homicide that's presently taking place in our country today has taken on a new color. I want you to listen to what one major city police chief said, how he describes it. He says, historically, there has been a relationship between the murderer and the victim. A jealous husband, a disgruntled employee, an angry business partner, now we see that, of course. He says, now, however, we are witnessing more murders that occur for the sheer thrill of the kill. Or as a flippant means to settle an argument, a wanton disregard for the value of life is significantly on the increase. In more homicide cases today than ever before, the victim and the perpetrator are strangers. They're completely unrelated to one another. Appears to be little the victim could have done to prevent the crime like Marcus Bogan, nothing. You know, the fastest growing group of thrill killers are children under 21, who have grown up in homes without healthy parental input, which has shouted to them one singular message, (laughs) your life is not that important to us, son daughter, with minds saturated with music and media that says the worst of life is the best, and with a society in general that keeps telling all these young people that that's all right, it's your right to do what you want. That's the world we live in. And by the way, did you know that the fastest group of thrill killers are white males under 21. It's the fastest group. Growing every day. Homicide. A second application of the Sixth Commandment concerns murder that's called suicide. Suicide. We've watched that. Maybe you've wrestled with that because we are a pain-escaping culture with Dr. Dr. Jack Kevorkian and with uh, the Right to Die movement in a number of states and assisted suicide that's presently in vogue and doctors who who feel the, maybe the need to play God. And, and, and part of us kind of lean that direction, don't we? We think, gosh, if you were in excruciating pain, I'd just rather go ahead and die. But let me tell you, as Christians, as you follow the Christian literature called the Bible, you're gonna find that life-giving and life-taking are divine prerogatives only. Only. That's historical. That has been reaffirmed by every Christian culture since the beginning. Job says it well. He said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And suicide is murder. It's sin on a personal level, but it's self-murder. It's what it is. And I I have to tell you, I wrestle with that. I've seen people in tremendous depression and heartache and a pain, and they think maybe that's a viable escape. I've had them tell me, I just don't want to live anymore, and walk out and I wonder if they're going to be there the next day. But as hard as those issues are, because life is hard, suicide is wrong. It's murder. It's not the will of God. You'll find no literature in the Bible that will back that. A third application of the Sixth Commandment concerns murder that's called infanticide. Now, we know that through this incredible social struggle that we feel every day and we love to just ignore and get away from called abortion. 1.5 million unborn children will be murdered. That's what it is. If by the definition, they will be murdered by their mothers. They will be they will be murdered by their mothers and endorsed by a nation that's hiding in a depraved denial. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to read about it. We don't want to see the pictures. So we just kind of bury it all. But I want you to know, blood pollutes the land. It pollutes it. And some of the devaluation of life and the fact that a child can walk into his parents' bedroom and blow them both away with a shotgun, you may not want to make this connection, but it is a connection. It's one of the connections. It goes back to the fact that every child since 1973 asks a question in here, and that is, did I get into the world by sacredness or by convenience? And the world shouts back, it was by convenience, you're lucky, son, and that devalues the sacredness of life for everyone. Blood pollutes the land. We're victims of our own crimes against humanity, and as a nation, we're experiencing the wrath of God, and it's gonna continue until this heinous crime is over. Did you know that in 1973, when Justice Harry Blackmun wrote his 64-page brief supporting a woman's right to abortion, he stated, that the objection to abortion comes primarily from two sources. He said from the Christian religion and from the Hippocratic oath that physicians have sworn to since the fifth century BC. Obviously back in the fifth, even in the fifth century, they knew when human life begins. (laughs) And that's why the physician took the oath that said I will give no woman a a, a, uh, procurement for abortion. Now, that's since been removed, by the way, in medical schools, that one line. The Hippocratic Oath's still there, but that line has been removed in our modern-day culture. But still, that was his argument. He dismissed it. He was dismissing, but he said there's two objections, Christianity and the Hippocratic Oath. Of course, he dismissed Christianity on the very convenient church-state clause. But now listen. He dismissed the Hippocratic Oath on the grounds of religion. He cited religion. And what religion did he cite? He cited the most ancient religions, the religions you and I would call pagan religions. He said that even when the Hippocratic Oath was around, most religions of that day advocated abortion. Sure they did. Child sacrifice. And yet he cited that as a reason for putting away the Hippocratic Oath. So in this convoluted way of thinking, the Christian religion was not allowed to influence Roe versus Wade, but ancient pagan religions and their bloodletting practices were. Today, pro-abortionists have long since conceded to pro-lifers that the life inside the womb is real. It's human. The scientific facts are overwhelming, and they're more so every day. In fact, as I met with one leader of the ACLU and pressed those scientific facts close to her, she finally just gave up and said, it's okay, it's a human life. That's what she told me, it's okay, it's a human life, but I still think a woman has a right to abort. So the issue has moved away from the reality of human life into a much darker, depraved state of I don't care. I'll take it anyway. I think the woman should have the right anyway, she told me. And I have to ask, a right based on what? Certainly not the Christian religion. Certainly not the facts of science. Certainly not the testimony of history and Western civilization, at least from the past, which has always passed laws against abortion. And certainly not from our own Declaration of Independence, which set forth in that declaration the basic rights of our citizens when it was healthy. Which said this, we hold these truths to be self-evident. Self-evident. They're so clear you don't even need to debate them. That all men are created, not born, created equal. And endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among them life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Don't you just wish it'd go away? It won't go away. What we honor today in America is nothing more than pagan child sacrifice. The kind when you were in high school and college and you read about, when you remember those ancients in ancient literature, like as John Milton speaks about in Paradise Lost, where those parents would walk up those steps and take their little baby and place it in the red-hot arms of Molech and hear the, the cries. And we'd shudder reading that kind of literature. The kind we heard about in Mexico when the Aztecs would cut the hearts out of their newborn children and offer them up to the sun god some days 10,000 at a time. And we'd just be horrified by that. Or when we looked at the last days of the Roman Empire as marriages fell apart and the culture declined, and what did the Romans do because they didn't want to be inconvenienced by unwanted children, they would just simply take them out into the woods and let them die by exposure or be eaten by the animals. And we think, what a barbaric culture. And yet, we collectively practice the same on a scale unheard of in human history. 4,300 children a day in America alone are sacrificed. And John Stott, the great English theologian, said it this way. Any society that it tolerates abortion, let alone legislates it, has ceased to be a civilized culture. And I would concur with that. My proudest moments as a Christian, my proudest, have been standing up for unborn children. When God said, thou shalt not murder, he spoke to homicide, he spoke to suicide, he spoke to infanticide. And any culture that ignores this commandment, bloodshed will follow bloodshed and the land will mourn. And judgment is coming. And now is. Just pick up your newspaper this morning. Before I close, I want to uh, speak to one other specific form of murder that doesn't address this, but I think addresses us all. It's one that is perpetual. It's one that you have an opportunity to commit or have had in your past. I want you to turn over to Matthew chapter 27, and let me explain to you what that murder is. And we can come full circle this morning. Since this morning, we had the privilege of celebrating communion. I want to paint this setting for you as I close. Now, when you get there, you're going to see that you're at Jesus' trial. It wasn't just one trial in history. It's a trial that's been going on in humanity for every generation since. And I want you to picture yourself out in the crowd because you are out in that crowd. You have been out in that crowd. You've been a part of this moment at some point in your history, your history. Look at verse 15. It says, now at the feast the governor was accustomed to release for the multitudes any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they were holding at that time a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. When therefore they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, to the crowd that is, whom do you want to release? me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who calls himself Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had delivered him up. Now there they are. Now I want you to imagine you're out in the crowd and here's Pilate's porch and he wanting to ignore this social upheaval brings these two men out on this feast day. And on his right is Barabbas and on his left is Jesus who calls himself the Christ. And in this moment of history stands a decision that has transcended this moment and is even relevant now. Just as Jesus' sacrifice, which would occur just a few days later, transcends history he didn't die for sin just in that day he died for all sin in every day and in this moment the crowd is asked to choose either barabbas who represents a notorious life a life apart from god a life built on selfishness a life that always allows itself to live a little bit above the law and to excuse itself a life set on what i would call what i call i want what i want when i want it and i don't care what you think that's the life of barabbas there's Jesus Christ on the other side and you're looking at Him and He stands for the opposite kind of life. It's life in union with God. It's life in love with God. It's life in submission to God. It's life given to God. And there's the world, the crowd. Which life do you want, Pilate asks. Notice in verse 21, they cry out, Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. And then in verse 22, he says, Well, what about Jesus? Kill Him! killing. Later, the Apostle Peter would confront this crowd in the book of Acts chapter 4, and he would set before them the charge that they killed Jesus Christ. Remember his words? This Christ whom you crucified. You murdered him. Now, I tell you that because I want you to listen closely. The church And the Word of God has presented Jesus Christ to every generation since the first century. And let me ask you this morning, which life do you choose? Which one? For in reality, there are only two ways of life. There's the life of Barabbas (laughs) and there's the life of Christ. And if you say, give me Barabbas... What you're really saying is give me his selfishness. Give me his me focus. Give me the privilege of living without authority and law when I choose, when I want to choose it. I want to live as Barabbas lived, which is as I please. That's the life of Barabbas. And if you choose the life of Barabbas, then I want you to listen to me. You murder Jesus Christ, whom God has offered to you. And you'll be charged with that homicide. You'll join the crowd that first began in Matthew 27 and has been growing ever since in every generation. As before that generation, Christ and Barabbas. And you get to choose. Thou shalt not murder. I want to close this morning by just simply I want to offer you again Jesus Christ the Son of God who takes away the sin of the world, the way, the truth, the life, to whom you must surrender. If you choose Christ, you will live. If you choose Barabbas, you choose to kill. Let's pray. And Father, we want to close this morning what is, I know, a very sobering message By not walking out of here thinking about how bad the world is. But by leaving here thinking about whether I have chosen to surrender to the life giver. Culture is rebuilt one brick at a time. One heart at a time. And I would pray for my brothers and sisters here. For those who maybe are just visiting for the first time. Whose life is out of control. Whose life has no cornerstone to build on, that they might be able to look into your eyes and see love and peace and order and provision of sin that we've celebrated even today to find life. Father, thank you that you will never turn that offer away. It's here today for those who want to experience not the bloodletting of the world, but the salvation that is by blood. Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.